Well, hello and welcome to the Westpac IQ Deeper Insights podcast. My name's Mike Willisey, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Georgia McCafferty, Managing Editor, Thought Leadership at The Economist Group, and Didier Van Knott, General Manager of Corporate and Institutional Banking at Westpac, about the recent Westpac IQ Economist Intelligent Unit Big Questions interview series. In the early stages of the COVID-19 crisis, Westpac IQ partnered with the Economist Intelligence Unit to explore and record the impact of the pandemic on major sectors of the Australian economy. The series captures candid and sometimes unexpected revelations of CEOs and other senior executives responsible for many of Australia's best-known brands and institutions. These included Flight Centre, Kathmandu, Vega Cheese, Monash University, St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne Airport and the global tech success Atlassian. It is an impressive list and also a great cross-section of industries. The interviews were conducted by Georgia McCafferty and the series was directed by Didier Van Knott. They join me now. Congratulations to both of you. It is really a fascinating series. Now, firstly, Georgia, to you, was there something that really stood out, something that really surprised you in your discussion with these business leaders? Thanks so much, Mark. I'm, I'm glad you um, enjoyed the series. It was certainly great working on it. Um, the things that really stood out for me was the willingness of the people actually in the first place to speak with us. Um, you know, these are guys who are managing a big business, obviously during a, a severe crisis. Um, and they were very willing to give up their time and their insights. Um, I wonder whether sometimes some of the um, interviews maybe turned into a bit of a, a therapy session, more in terms of business therapy, um, in terms of reflecting on, you know, what they'd kind of done and, and the experiences they've been through. And I don't think during a crisis you often get the chance to do that. Um, so I do think for some of them um, it ended up a bit like that. Um, the re things that really stood out for me were the resilience. And it's not surprising, I guess, given that these are CEOs and, and C-suites that we're speaking with, but just the sheer resilience of these people. Um, and how they were able to push through and find positives um, in industries that sometimes were obviously going through and still are going through some really challenging times. Um, and also the pride in the teams. Almost every single person we spoke to was reflecting on how innovative and how agile their teams have had to become. And oftentimes how decisions that used to take kind of three years we're now being made in three months. And that's something that doesn't just happen individually, that happens as a team. And they were saying how good it was um, to have the teams along to do that with. Um, the third thing that really struck me was obviously for a lot of the, the people that we spoke to, um, the real pain that they saw in having to, to cut costs. And that means people in many cases. So that was an obvious impact that that's had. So that were kind of some of my key insights from speaking with them. Yeah, it's real privileged. Um, insight and, and wonderful that they were able to pause and, and share it with us. Didier, to you, what, what struck you? What really surprised you from the series? Hi, Mike. Well, I didn't participate in the interviews. I wish I did. Would have been fascinating and I could have used some of Georgia's therapy as well, I guess, because we've all been struggling through this. Um, I started reading the articles. I think the first article if I recollect correctly, was mid-May. And then every two weeks we came out with another article. And every article in its own right was really fascinating and insightful. Then last Sunday, I read all the seven articles, one after the other. And it gives me quite a good perspective of, of some of the insights 
And things that stood out for me, Mike, probably three things. Firstly, it's obvious that all the sectors of the economy, the Australian economy at least, were impacted and still are. And most of them adversely, and that's really painful. The second one is that this issue and the impact of COVID will not go away anytime soon. I remember starting reading the articles back in May that we were talking about how this will go away in 2021. So the rest of this year basically is a write-off. We're preparing for 2021 recovery. But clearly, most of the participants that Georgia interviewed were talking about two years, 2022. And that's a long time. And the third thing was probably the speed of decision making. Everybody, every respondent had to make quick decisions. And they had to make those quick decisions whilst dealing with a lot of uncertainty. And that takes courage. And I think they've done it brilliantly as well. So I was pretty pleased and, and proud of all the decisions they took so far. Let's, let's dig a bit deeper. It does go without saying, as, as you touched on, Didier, that the crisis has impacted all sectors of the economy. Let, let's look at the big picture. And Georgia, to you firstly, how, how do the experiences of Australia's top business leaders and top businesses compare with what we're seeing around the globe? Looking at Australia as a whole, um, from an economic, but also, you know, this is a healthcare crisis from a healthcare perspective, Australia locked down hard and it locked down early in comparison to other countries. But its lockdown wasn't too hard. So New Zealand had a really severe lockdown. Ours was kind of a little bit more balanced than that. So if you look at things like, like construction, agriculture, education to some degree, although that was obviously severely impacted, they were still going on. So from an economic perspective, you still had, um, you know, some things that were ticking along, you still had growth. Um, in terms of the GDP impact, if you actually look at the March figures, Australia actually fared in terms of its contraction much better than some other countries, um, especially if you look at China, Italy, even the UK and the US, um, and it was certainly better than the OECD average. So while I know Australia's doing a lot of hand-wringing at the moment, and um, the economy is, is really top of the discussion, I can see domestically, it's actually done relatively well. Looking at the healthcare system, it also performed very well. It had lower deaths than, than Europe, um, certainly lower deaths than you're seeing in the US at the moment. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's actually done comparatively well. Looking at a sector by sector basis, I think, um, you know, you can see some sectors now that the crisis has gone on for a bit longer that are starting to be impacted. So, for example, agriculture um, has been impacted by the geopolitical fallout of the COVID crisis. So you've got things like, you know, meat exports and barley exports and those kind of things that are being um, severely hit. Um, agriculture is a sector as well. Um, in terms of its actual export market. 70% of what we produce is exported, but a lot of that to the markets that it exports to, it's a discretionary purchase, it's not essential. So for people in Asia, for example, cheese is not a staple of their diet. It's something that they often, um, you know, purchase as a luxury product. So it's certainly been impacted there. Um, I know um, speaking to Bega, for example, um, you know, Paul Van Heewan was talking about the impact that's having on prices, having to find alternate markets for his dairy products. In the longer term, looking at the Australian economy, um, it does seem to be doing better than some of those in the rest of the world. However, there are two sectors that I think 
comparatively have really and probably are likely to take a bigger hit in the longer term. Education is the first. You've got 30% of our education market in terms of tertiary education is overseas students. Um, and it's very hard to see how that's going to be um, recovered in the next kind of one to two years with borders the way that they are and international travel the way that, that it is. So that is really likely to take, um, you know, a medium term perspective to really recover well. Um, and our education system being so heavily dependent on overseas students is obviously much more impacted than those in other countries. Tourism is the second. So not just in terms of lagging behind overseas markets. So if you look at Europe at the moment, um, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, that's, I think, yet to be seen. But a lot of Europe is opening up to tourism um, and Australia doesn't have that um, option at the moment. So that's impacting it definitely. Um, and in terms of domestic tourism, our market is much smaller than those of other countries. I mean, even Japan, for example, which is opening up domestically for tourism, it has a much bigger market domestically than we do. So tourism and travel here is also going to have really take a long term here. Didier, you get to um, you have quite a, a privileged um, relationship and access to some of Australia's biggest businesses. Does this stack up with uh, with what you're seeing in uh, in the bank? Absolutely. Um, I was going to build on, on on some of what uh, Georgia was saying, but I think she she really explored the various sex extremely well. I, I think, Mike, that we're very blessed in Australia. I mean, we're really self sufficient. But at the end of the day, the economy that we have is very much dependent on exports. And Georgia touched on that. I mean, she spoke about travel, tourism, education. They've been adversely impacted and significantly so. On the other hand, commodities, which is a key, key part of our economy, uh, they probably did a bit better than we expected, especially iron ore. Th those prices of iron ore actually have held up really nicely. And of course, that's a massive export of Australia and that's holding us in, in good stead. I think a good way to compare our performance compared to what's happening overseas is basically looking at economic forecasts. And I had a look at the, the Westpac forecasts recently. And if you look at global growth for 2020, we believe that the global growth will be minus 4.5%. Now in Australia, our economy is in recession. Uh, it's been in recession the first half of this year. And let's not forget, this is the first recession we've had since 1991. Uh, I came here actually from Europe in 1994, I think it was, and it's been growth ever since. And this is the very first time actually that we uh, have to deal into this recession. And this downturn, we believe, will have a long lasting impact. Most notably, of course, there's a significant shift in unemployment, which, which is a real worry. And then, of course, this is exacerbated in Melbourne now with the second lockdown. And that second lockdown actually is a real blow to the economy. We had to revise our forecasts for economic growth, or lack thereof, for 2020, and we're now forecasting basically minus 4.2%. So that compares to minus 4.5% globally, if you want to compare Australia with, uh, with the global performance. That minus 4.2%, I believe, still has downside risk. I mean, we've seen how the second lockdown has had an impact actually on that number, and we don't know what's going to happen in New South Wales and other parts of Australia, so we have to watch it very closely. In 2021, we think there's going to be a recovery, but like I said earlier on, Mike, it might be quite lackluster because we're still going to have to deal with the legacies, of course, from the pandemic, the recession, of course, and God forbid, hopefully, we're not going to have uh, some other outbreaks 
which would basically make that recovery even harder. So by and large, I agree with Georgia, is that we're faring a little bit better compared to other parts of the economy. And it will be good to see what we're going to do in 2021 to recover from this as quickly as possible. It's, uh, it's said often and quite correctly, this is a health crisis with economic impacts. So I, I think it's probably a good time to look at the healthcare uh, sector specifically. And it's very interesting that the, the two sides to healthcare businesses, one, they've had to actually deal with the, the actual uh, health response and emergency response to the crisis. The other is they're still businesses that have to, have to run as businesses. Now, Toby Hall, the CEO of St. Vincent's Australia, he, uh, he praised the level of consultation across the whole healthcare sector and, and pointed out that it really helped deliver the good results that we've seen in containing uh, COVID countrywide, noting that the interview was prior to the second Victorian lockdown. But he also did call out some inconsistent decision-making uh, and some problems around that. This, I think, is very interesting. Georgia, um, can you take us through that and, and sort of talk about what, what Toby Hall thought could have been done better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, God bless Toby. He was really um, forthcoming with his time. You know, he's obviously uh, very busy at the moment. Talked about the fact that, you know, he's finding it very hard to sleep. And I'm sure now that the um, COVID numbers are going back up, it's still the case. Um, he was very generous with his time. Um, he did emphasise the fact that the research-based approach in Australia. So having chief medical officers that were listened to really left its medical system in a much better place um, than some other countries have been. But there were three key issues that he kind of raised that, um, and these are longer term issues, I think that will need to be looked at. Um, they're not easy fixes. So the first was the fragmentation. So you've got the, the federal system, but also state systems. And he said that that separation and the fragmentation in responses. And I think you're seeing that at the moment today. Um, play out in Victoria to some degree, um, cause problems. Um, now that's not something that is easy to fix. Um, it's a, you know, a huge issue um, looking at it politically. Um, so, but that was certainly something that he said is having an impact um, overall on the healthcare system in Australia. Secondly, he said there should have been uh, a better technological response to contact tracing. He said that the response was slow, um, it lagged behind those in some other places like Singapore, for example, where I am, um, and that that really has impacted contact tracing, not just at the time, but also now. The third thing that he mentioned was PPE, so personal protective equipment and the supply chain as it relates to that. Um, he said, you know, it was very difficult for them to source PPE and that Australia longer term is going to have to look at different um, markets to source its PPE from and perhaps even uh, produce that domestically. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of, of, of industries have had uh, significant supply chain issues. Um, did you, what are you seeing with uh, Westpac customers in terms of how they're dealing with, um, with resolving those supply chain issues? Yeah, well, we've had supply chain issues quite significantly. I mean, on top of the protective equipment, uh, issues that we had that Georgia touched on. Right now, for instance, in Victoria, we're dealing with a face mask, face mask shortage. And I don't have to remind all of you that back in March, April, when we went through the, uh, to, to the supermarkets, the shelves were empty. So it's a significant issue. And I think Paul uh, van Heerwarden, in his uh, discussion with Georgia, 
spoke about some initial supply chain issues actually as well for bigger cheese and, and how they manage that. I would say, Mike, that by and large, now that the initial shock is behind us, the urgent supply issues have been managed, I believe. And many companies actually are developing supply chain strategies that seek to de-risk this particular issue. So there's diversification of suppliers, and you want to do that to remove concentration risk. You also want to basically consider having increased inventory, at least temporarily. I think you're going to look at uh, maybe balancing better your domestic versus overseas supply chain as such and your supplies, which Georgia touched on. If I look at what's happening in China, it's quite interesting, actually. We have quite a lot of clients in mainland China who are big manufacturers and smelting companies and the like. And when COVID broke out, and, and they were the first part of the, uh, of the world, actually, where COVID took place, as, as we know, many of these manufacturing companies basically went to a standstill or quasi standstill. And then suddenly, when they started to get hold of, 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 of the virus and the spread thereof, basically, they started basically to manufacture again. And the companies in China that rely primarily on a supply chain that's domestic are basically back at 100% capacity in terms of manufacturing capacity. The Chinese companies that are dependent on overseas, overseas supply chains are not there yet. They're manufacturing, but at much, much lower levels. And so you can see where you have concentration risk in terms of overseas supply from a supply chain perspective, that it's impacting actually uh, your business and putting you more at risk. So many conversations I've had with, uh, with clients talk about the supply chain concentration risk issue and how to basically develop new strategies to, to basically mitigate that risk. And that's happening as we speak. Mm. It's um, Just a second to that. Sorry, Mike. Um, it's something that we're seeing a lot at, at The Economist and the EIU. Um, companies kind of speaking to us about, and this is globally, um, about the impact that's had on supply chains and how people are having to rethink that um, you know that aspect of their business. It's a, it's a really critical issue for businesses globally. Yeah, um, the, looking you know at impacted industries, and many have been able to restart, and and you know whether it's through different markets or different uh, avenues. But one that really hasn't is travel and tourism. We, we've seen just a brutal stop in, in that business. Now, since this series, we've seen Qantas announce plans to cut something like 6,000 employees. Virgin has been sold to private equity group Bain Capital. Uh, it's just ongoing and, and no real end in sight. Flight Centre CFO Adam Campbell, he described what it was like for him to, to have record sales in, in February and then April, they hit something like 10% of what they were, or less than 10% of what they'd forecast and, and were then forced to raise capital. Um, as a lot of businesses have. Didier, if I can ask you, what in that area of, of this need for urgent need for capital raising, um, has that been fairly standard across travel and tourism? I might actually answer your question a bit broader and I'll come back to travel and tourism. We've had significant requests, as you, as you can imagine, for capital. And we had a massive surge in the month of March and April. Having said that, we were extremely well positioned for this much, much better compared to GFC. Um, the GFC was actually a completely different crisis. It was a financial crisis, and COVID is really a health crisis with a massive financial impact, we know. But when the GFC took place, we had limited liquidity. And now, with COVID, 
we're in a situation when there's lots of liquidity in the market and in most capital markets. So many companies actually were able to raise fresh equity. So you touched on travel and tourism. And there's many examples of well-known brands in the travel and tourism industry actually who basically tapped the equity markets to create that liquidity buffer that they needed. In a similar vein, Mike, uh, there's been very significant bond issuance in the US and Europe. And it's been quite significant, actually, and many Australian companies were able to issue bonds in those markets. There's been a little bit of bond issuance as well in the Australian market, but not to the same degree. And then thirdly, the banks, banks like Westpac, they injected significant liquidity in the local market as well. Like I said, we had this big spike in uh, March and April, May probably as well. And the requests we, would, we received were primarily for liquidity and working capital facilities, as you can imagine. But that was like basically across all sectors. Now, there's some sectors that are debt heavy, like infrastructure and property. And obviously, we got lots of requests from those sectors. But I think the requests were thoroughly well spread uh, through the economy. But the banking support actually had to come differently as well. So in addition to, provide, to providing liquidity and support, we basically had to agree to covenant relief for some clients. We basically had to allow for deferred amortization, interest capitalization. And I think we responded really well to that. Overall, I think, Mike, that actually I'm pretty proud of, of the way the entire banking sector actually has responded to this crisis. And like I said, liquidity has not been the main issue. Actually, many clients actually at the institutional level actually are well capitalized to, to sell through this crisis, hopefully. Mm, yeah, interesting. Look, I, I will get very shortly to some of the other common themes we're seeing, but we, we're just coming off and to close the loop on travel and tourism. Georgia, do you have a, a steer or, or a best guess around international travel moving forward? That's a, a very difficult question to answer for anyone, I think. Um, and I'm going to uh, you know, go with the experts' estimates here. Um, certainly, everyone that I've spoken to, uh, both for this series and, and outside um, with people here in Asia, um, 2022 is what everybody's kind of pointing at, um, which for me, being in Singapore, not being able to see my family in Australia <laughs> is quite disappointing. Um, but certainly, I think from an Australian perspective, you're going to see domestic travel open up first. You'll then see travel corridors that are most likely to be for business initially. Um, and then also for leisure travel um, before things open up generally. But yeah, the general best estimate at the moment seems to be 2022. Sounds like a long way away, doesn't it? Let, let's um, it talk does. about some of the themes. Um, and perhaps, Didier, what um, common themes you are seeing emerging um, across sectors? Yeah. I think Georgia touched on that in her opening remarks, I believe, the first question she, she answered. What we were seeing is the need to adapt and basically the need to strengthen resilience. It's really important in the crisis. Like I said, is you have to deal with uncertainty. I mean, how much inventory are you going to keep? What staffing levels are you going to have? Who's going to work from home? Who's not going to work from home? How are you going to reprioritize your investments? How are you going to manage your liquidity in your balance sheet? When are you going to start advertising again? They're difficult things to answer, but the ability to basically deal with this uncertainty is what's going to set the winners apart from, uh, from the others, I believe. And that corporate agility and speed of decision making, I think, has been really front and center. When you're in a crisis like this, and that's what clients are telling us, is that you really need to transform, innovate and digitize. 
I'll come back to digitization in a minute, but the importance of technology has really been amplified quite significantly through this crisis. Uh, we all use technology, of course, as we know, working from home and, uh, and elsewhere as well, and that's been basically one of the few sectors that, uh, that's been a winner on the back of this. The other thing that's really struck me, actually, Mike, is the role of government. Uh, if I look at federal government and state government, and how they've been on the front foot in Australia in engaging with the private sector, I think it's worked really well. There's been lots of consultation. Uh, they've helped with coordination of supply chain issues, like, uh, like we discussed before. Uh, they were very quick to say that construction actually was essential for this economy. And there's so much employment in construction, as we know. And then, of course, they provided the support packages like JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Overall, I think the role of government was, uh, was really important. And I think they did a good job. Yeah, I, I don't think many would disagree with you there, Didier. Let's, um, conscious time is against us here, but there is a little bit more to talk about. Now, it, it's obviously been an incredibly difficult time for everyone, but there are there are clear winners in this uh, through this crisis. There are sectors that have actually found um, that this has been a positive for them. Georgia, can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, I think some of the, the key sectors that have found this to be positive, obviously technology. But technology, it's easy to say, um, you know, as a whole, it's, it's done very well because as a whole, it hasn't necessarily. Because there's actually, uh, you know, technology is a very large sector that has all different types of business. Big tech, so companies that deal with cloud computing, uh, collaboration tools, things like Amazon, Zoom, those kind of things have obviously done very well. Um, you can see that in their their uh, valuations, um, the share market at the moment. But other technology companies, hardware companies, for example, have been dealing with supply chain issues, with store closures, technology companies that also um, have customers that are, are discretionary, so they're not essential purchases, have also seen um, things fall off. Some businesses are also um, foregoing investment in technology that they may have done at the moment to reduce costs. Um, that's not across the board, but that's certainly something that we're seeing. So technology has some you know, winners and losers. Um, I think healthcare, obviously, I think longer term will be a winner. Healthcare is going to be transformed. You're going to see companies um, have to incorporate aspects of healthcare into their operations um, that you wouldn't necessarily have seen before. So that's definitely going to be a, a big winner. Um, but it's difficult, you know, for, for most businesses at the moment. I think retail longer term in Australia, um, I think it's very hard at the moment, but I think it will be very beneficial. Um, Australia really lagged behind the rest of the world in terms of its e-commerce. Um, that's really changing at the moment, and I think that will have a longer term impact. It really kind of gave it a, a good prod to, to modernise. Um, so that will be interesting as well. I, I particularly enjoyed the um, Scott Farquhar from Atlassian saying that the, the industry has in a matter of months jumped ahead five years. Yeah, uh, and actually that's something that you, you heard, not just from Scott, but actually a lot of other people as well. Um, Toby Hall, for example, was talking about healthcare and the fact that telemedicine was something that people were really reluctant to use prior to COVID-19, but they had to use it during the, the pandemic. And he talked about, um, you know, this 90-year-old lady who had uh, multiple health issues and rather than having to go and see four specialists, take four separate trips, book four different appointments, they were able to get four of her specialists all on a Zoom call. She was able to use Zoom. 
you know, um, despite the the technology um, issues there that, that may um, be seen by some. Um, and she was able to have a 10 minute consultation with all of her four um, specialists at, at, at one time and get that all her issues solved and resolved and actually get medicine um, prescribed as well. So, you know, things like that, he definitely said it's, again, he said it's been a five year jump as well. Didi, you, you talk about having been in Australia since 1994 and, and seeing nothing but growth. Uh, I've, I've read some things recently that we, we don't have a lot of executives who, are, who have experience of dealing with really challenging, tough times that we're currently in. This, this is certainly um, going to create some of those executives, isn't it? What, what, what do you expect looking to the future? What? What do I expect looking into the future? That's a very, very broad question. Uh, firstly, in terms of the younger generation that's coming through who've never seen a recession, I think that uh, they're in for a shock. I mean, I've seen, um, I've seen a few in my life and I'm getting better and better at dealing with it, but the new generation doesn't really know how to deal with it, so we're going to have to help them with that. But looking into the future, I think there's a thing emerging, I believe, of globalization and, and protectionism. And you have to ask yourself whether the rate of globalization is going to be as fast as it's been in recent years. I think, following my earlier comments, Mike, that if you think and reflect upon the supply chain issues and the challenges that some companies have had, that maybe there's a case for increased manufacturing domestically in Australia. Clearly, that would be outstanding for, for employment purposes and for the economy. In a similar vein, many companies, and service companies as well, who've been looking at outsourcing and offshoring are going to have to revisit their plans, I believe. I think there's still going to be room for offshoring and things like that, but you want to de-risk that activity. I mean, many companies have, uh, are working with BPO providers in India and, 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 and other parts of in Asia and other parts of the world as well, but you carry concentration risk with that. And through COVID, uh, some of these companies found it really difficult to deliver on the services they had to deliver upon. They had to bring back basically the activities performed by these BPOs back, back to Australia. That had a client impact. And so going forward, I expect that that risk will have to be mitigated differently. So there might be diversification of BPO providers. They might be outsourcing domestically and things like that. That would be one thing that's emerging. Another one, I think, in Australia is that I expect a wave of mergers and acquisitions. What we've seen is that there's slow organic growth. Well, there's no growth at present. It's negative growth. And typically when that happens, and I've seen it before, when there's limited growth, there's acquisition activity. This is fueled as well by probably a private equity sector that's cash rich. Like I said before, there's plenty of liquidity looking for a home. And on top of that, COVID is really forcing big companies to think about their strategy and often divesting or demerging non-core businesses, which is what we're seeing now. So, of course, I have no crystal ball, but if I had to pick some sectors that will probably be successful, I would say IT and telco, we just had a chat about that, so that will continue. Infrastructure, I think, is well, very well positioned. Infrastructure always performs well in low interest rate environment because it's debt heavy. 
and there's so much infrastructure to be deployed from roads and tunnels, hospitals, schools and so forth. And that can be deployed by state governments on its own or they can work in partnership, of course, with the private sector via PPPs and that model has been quite successful in Australia. Another one would be this whole focus on sustainability, delivering on the Paris Agreement, decarbonizing the economy. And I think renewable energy and clean energy are themes that are, that are very topical at present. There's a lot of activity in that space right now, and I think that will continue in the foreseeable future. We touched on healthcare before. I think it will be delivered differently, but I think healthcare probably is going to be one of those sectors that's going to attract a lot of interest, as well as the defense sector. I mean, we've seen the Australian government made an announcement not long ago that they want to be spending more in defense. Uh, not only is that good, of course, for those contractors, but the, the level of activity it generates for the subcontractors, hundreds of small companies in Australia, is phenomenal. And that's, it's very, very good for the economy. So these are sort of my thoughts, Mike, uh, in answering your very broad question. <laughs> it is a broad question. And Georgia, guess what? I'm going to ask you. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not sure I have a lot to add um, to what Didier said. Um, he really wrapped that up very well. Um, I certainly agree with him in terms of this is very hard to predict. And I think anyone who says they can accurately predict it, you know, is fibbing. There's just no way. Yeah, just looking at Australia, for example, the way things have changed so quickly in just a couple of weeks. Um, we at The Economist um, are doing a survey monthly at the moment of global business executives, it's called the Global um, Business Barometer. Actually, looking at the results of that, um, I think a lot of people were predicting a kind of a V-shaped uh, economic recovery or even an L-shaped recovery where it goes down, it stays flat for a while, but then picks up again. But actually what we're seeing from the responses is that, um, and I guess this goes to the sector-based recovery as well, that some sectors are actually doing quite well and others aren't, is that it's likely to be more of an odd-shaped U recovery. So some, uh, you know, kind of businesses are going to do quite well and come out faster than others, but there's still going to be quite a large gap um, uh, in the middle where people are really struggling. So sort of looking at it overall, I think, I don't think that is, is going to be um, something that we're all going to see. It's definitely going to be something that is a hard slog for a lot of businesses, um, not just in Australia, but globally. Yeah, I think that's uh, something we can agree on. Georgia McCafferty and, and Judy Van Nott, thank you for your time. As I said earlier, congratulations on the big question series. It is great. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, you can uh, find the full series on Westpac IQ. If you're not already a subscriber, just search Westpac IQ on your web browser. Click on the subscribe button for a free subscription. There's a lot of great content on the site, uh, including this great series. Thank you both, been great talking to you. And that is it for this episode of Deeper Insights. I'm Mike Willisey. Thanks for listening.